The first storyteller is a very good friend of mine, and uh, I think probably a lot of people in this room and anyone that's even only met him maybe once might also think that because he's the kind of person that you meet and you think, oh, we really like each other. He's really nice and he gets me. Chris Cook plays a trumpet with the Spokane Symphony, teaches music at Gonzaga. He was a Washington State yo-yo champion, nationally ranked foosball player. He's... He's a man of many talents. Uh, and he also is a, a huge uh, and beloved part of the Spokane poetry scene. I got to hear a snippet of this story as a poem he told. I won't talk this much about everybody else, just about Chris. And it was really fun at the rehearsal to get to hear him tell his story and to get to watch him try and, like, I'm telling a story in a story voice, not in a poet voice, you know? Uh, so, root him on uh, tonight. Uh, Chris Cook is going to tell a really lovely story because uh, everything he does is lovely. Marge answered the phone in the kitchen and yelled back to the dishwashing room, Hey, Jay, it's for you. But before he took any calls, he always shouted, Is it Hollywood? And for the hundredth time, we all laughed. I was just a kid when I worked with him there at the coach house. It was a 24-hour place right across the street from the old Greyhound Depot and on the ground floor of the Otis Hotel. It was a throwback to another time where the waitresses, like Marge, still had beehive hairdos, and there was chrome trim on the stools, and there were naugahyde booths. And Jay and I worked in an unventilated dishwashing room whose heat and humidity would burn your throat if you didn't learn to take shallow breaths. I drank ice water to try and stave off the heat. Jay slurped steaming hot coffee all day. It'll cool you off, he said. You ought to try it. I thought, you are crazy, old man. But eventually I learned he was right. He was a great practical joker, but could be serious, too. And sometimes I couldn't tell the difference. Like when I sliced my finger doing prep work and he said, go piss on it. I beg your pardon? Piss on it. It'll clean it out so it won't get infected. You're kidding, right, Jay? I am serious. Piss on it. Well, I, I cleaned it up and bandaged it in the more traditional way. But I have to say that when I got home that night and was taking my shower, I remembered Jay's advice and I thought to myself, oh, what the heck. I couldn't tell if the smile he gave me the next day when I told him what I had done meant that I had fallen for his practical joke or if he was just pleased that his young understudy was finally starting to trust him. The finger never did get infected. Jay was so generous with me in small and big ways. Uh, Dorothy made pies from scratch once a week, and her crust uh, was always made with lard, which I know sounds weird to us these days, but it was amazingly good. And the pie filling never came out of a can. It was always fresh fruit. And so one of my enduring images of Dorothy is her standing over a garbage can, peeling apples with the skin always coming off 
intact, like in one long coil. Um, And she also used fresh blueberries, which were a revelation to me. Those were things that I hadn't grown up with. And uh, once the pies were in the oven, she would show up in the dishwashing room with two bowls, each filled with fresh blueberries, cream, and a soup spoon. And Jay must have seen the look in my eyes because before I was able to eat mine, he had already spooned some of his blueberries into my bowl. He was also generous with money, and I didn't think he could afford to be. We had a regular named Claude who was a junkyard owner, and we had saved table scraps in cardboard boxes for his junkyard dogs. And it was Jay's job to put those boxes in Claude's trunk. He always parked out back. But one time, Jay asked if I would put the boxes there. I said, sure, no big deal. What kind of car does Claude have? He said, oh, you'll know. So I went out to the alley, and here's a brand new mid-1970s Cadillac Eldorado, about as wide as some cars are long. It had the trunk lid open, so I put the boxes in there and shut that. And a little while later, Claude found me and slipped me a $10 bill. And as they say, back in those days, that was a lot of money. And that was Jay's tip money coming to me. Apparently, Claude tipped 10 bucks like every time you put dog scraps in the, the trunk of his car. Um, anyway, Jay had bills to pay. I was just a student at LC saving up money for my first car. And that was a really generous thing to do. Maybe I told him that that's what I was saving for, and he wanted to be a part of seeing me uh, achieve that dream. Jay had that pale, gaunt, indoor look about him, plus a tough old cuss attitude that said, I've seen everything, and I wasn't overly impressed. (laughs) Yeah. He was sinew, bone, and translucent skin that had been tattooed in his sailor years back when sailors were about the only ones who had them. All that plus a sense of humility brought about by alcoholism. Booze was one of the few things tough enough to tell Jay, I can kick your ass and then back it up repeatedly. I remember when Marge sent me up to his room at the Otis because he was late for work again. And I hated seeing the look in his eyes when he finally came to and realized what he had done again. But he was my underground guru and the first adult to treat me as an equal. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me. He always talked to me man to man. And so eventually I learned to act like one. Up to that point, I'd never met many people like Jay who were hip enough to know that we're in this earthly proposition together, that it's best to treat one another with enough decency and respect that there's a good chance it'll get returned the same way. Ten years later, I ran into Marge at the laundromat in Brown's edition behind Rosar's. She was still washing sheets and towels for the Otis and helping out at the coach house whenever they were short-handed. I asked her if she'd heard anything from Jay. She paused. Then, in a different voice, she told me that when Jay took his last shot at turning his life around, he was in New Orleans, Party Central, Good Time USA, except that Jay hadn't had a good time there. She said that someone had found Jay's body in the gutter with his head beaten in. 
Marge wept loud and hard when she told me this. She was never the type to suffer privately. I felt bad being aware of the people staring at us when what I should have been doing was holding Marge to help absorb some of her convulsive grief. But I just stood there as the numbness washed over me. I've never known what to do at a time like that. I keep thinking that since they make so many movies about fictional heroes, maybe they could do one about a real hero like Jay. Nothing fancy or pretentious, just honest and true. That'd be cool. So that if I ever answer the phone and someone asks to talk to Jay, I'll remember him shouting, Is it Hollywood? And I try to imagine the look on his face when I tell him, Yes, it is. Our next uh, storyteller is Jessica, Jessica Watson. Uh, I know her as a comedian. We have a really like up and coming and strong and fun uh, comedy scene in Spokane. You might not know that, but you should. And Jessica is a huge part of that and one of my favorite people to see whenever I see she's at the lineup of something I know I'm going to have a good time. She's got a, a more meaningful story for you. Here. <laughs> Jessica Watson. So I would be really remiss to tell any story about my life um, without mentioning my friends, um, because I have better friends than anyone could ever hope for, and uh, they really mean the world to me. Um, so three years ago, my marriage was like really on the rocks, and we were trying to fix it, so <laughs> we went to counseling, and the lady was like, you guys just need to have like good experiences together, you just need to do things together. Um, you're not speaking each other's love languages because my love language is cleaning and his love language was making a mess. So <laughs> things were actually going pretty good, though. And so we went out to lunch and it was like a beautiful day. Like Bob Ross had painted it. It was like blue. There was like white clouds. And I started telling him a story and I got two sentences out before he cut me off and he was like, I'm already bored. And so I sat across the table from him just like seething and I was just like, the problem in our marriage is not that like we don't spend time together. The problem is like he just doesn't like me. <laughs> so I pointed it out later. I was like, just in case you haven't noticed, <laughs> you don't appear to like me. So... <laughs> One of my really good friends actually ended up talking me through it because it's still hard even if you hate the person that you're married to. Um, and so right after my divorce was finalized, um, something had changed and um, I had to make an appointment with a doctor. I ended up going to a gynecologist and I told him what was wrong and he was like, well, you might just be um, a little overweight. Maybe if you lose like 10 pounds, um, that'll help. And I was like, well, like a white guy hit on me the other day though. So I don't think I'm like fat. Um, <laughs> so they did some more testing. <laughs> it's funny cause it's true. So they did some more testing <laughs> 
And he ended up finding a cyst like the size of a grapefruit hanging out by my left ovary. And he was like, um, we'll take it out. And so my surgery was on Valentine's Day because, like, what else am I doing? So <laughs> it's like someone's going to see me nude. So, <laughs> so the surgery was a success. And, like, I went back to work, and I'm at work, and it's, like, it's right before my birthday because my birthday is at the end of February. Um, and I'm playing, I'm... I'm on my last break, it's Friday, I've just come back to work, and I'm playing on my phone trying to figure out what I'm doing that weekend, and I get a phone call, and it's the doctor's office, and he's like, um, I have to tell you that you had cancer, and I was like, what? I was like, I eat really healthy, are you sure? He's like, yeah, he's like, I ran the test twice, because like, my blood work was fine, everything, I, like, I was jogging 20 miles a week, I was eating vegetables. I was so, I was, I was furious. Like, I get this phone call. I ran into my job, and I told my boss, I was like, I'm going home, I have cancer, bye. And I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I get in my car, and I'm driving home, and, like, the check engine light came on. And I was like, what do you want? Like, what is this? This is, I was so, I was furious. I was furious. My friend, the same friend who talked me through my divorce, ended up, she cut work and came to the doctor's office with me on Monday. He was great, and he referred me to a gynecological oncologist, and she, like, took out my left ovary and a bunch of lymph nodes and then called me later, and she's like, everything was totally clear. But in the meanwhile, I was, like, furious. Like, I was so mad. My best friend came up to visit me, and she's like, do you feel lucky? Do you feel lucky that you got a second chance? And I was like, I'm angry. Like, I'm so angry. I've been eating vegetables. I've been jogging. Nobody likes to do either of those things, and I've been doing them. And I still got cancer. There's no family history for me. Like, I'm furious. I'm so furious. So she painted my room and then gave up and went home. And, uh... <laughs> it's true. She did. So... So as a, as a precaution, I had to do three rounds of chemo. And I was like, um, is my hair going to fall out? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, okay, so um, I'm not doing that. And um, <laughs> she's like, but you'll be alive. And I was like, but without hair. Because I knew the way I look at people who like, have lost their hair to chemo, and I did not want to go to the grocery store like that. And I was so scared. And I would tell people, and I'd be like, I'm, you know, like, I'm going to lose my hair. And they were like, well, it's going to grow back. And I'd be like, well, but, like, in the meantime, like, you know, I wear enough flannel shirts. Like, it's not, it doesn't work. And then, <laughs> I'm straight. I can't do this. So, the, finally, my hairstylist, I'm so blessed to have her, she just, I was like, my hair is going to fall out. And she's like, if it does, we will fix it. I promise you we'll fix it. Like, she's like, no matter what happens, if it falls out on the crown, we will fix it. She's like, I don't care what I have to do. I will drop anything I'm doing. I will come and I will fix your hair. And then I realized at that point the difference between, like, sympathy and empathy is, like, empathy, sympathy is where someone's like, well, that, you know, it'll grow back. And empathy is like the, I will fix it, it'll be okay, and that sucks. That's all I wanted for people to say was just like, I get it, like, that sucks. 
So before you go to chemo, there's a class that you have to take where you learn about the symptoms of chemotherapy and stuff like that. And the nurse who's teaching the class, she's talking about her husband, and she's telling us what's going to happen. And I found these, like, cold caps that you can wear. If you freeze your head and you keep it at negative 38 degrees for eight hours, you can kind of keep your hair, which I did. Um, I was like, I don't care what happens. Um... But we need to keep my hair. Um, So (laughs) it was terrible. Um, But during the, and so she's telling me, like, what's going to happen with my hair. And I was like, well, I'm going to wear these cold caps. I don't want my hair to fall out. And she's like, well, your hair might fall out. And I was like, I'm going to, no, I'm going to will it to stay. (laughs) I'm going to keep my hair. And she's like, well, it might fall out. Kind of like shaming me into, like, because I didn't want to lose my hair. And I was like, well, but, like, you have red hair. Like, my hair is pretty. Like, can you try to, like... Kind of put yourself in my shoes. I don't mean that. I just, I was so angry. I was so angry during this time of my life. And (laughs) I'm off work, so I don't have anything to do. I go jogging. And in my neighborhood, there's a lot of stray dogs. And I'm jogging, and this dog, like, kind of starts following me. And again, I'm at, like, I'm at, like, a Brian of Tarth level of angry just on a daily basis. Okay? So... (laughs) Um, I'm jogging and this little dog's kind of following me, but I don't think anything of it. Cause like, that's what happens in our neighborhood. Like nobody keeps their dogs in their yard. And I'm like a block away from my house when this car pulls up and this guy goes, are you trying to steal my dog? And I was like, I have a dog. Why would I try to steal your dog? He's like, well, you're, my dog was following you. And I was like, okay. He's like, well, I think you were trying to steal my dog. And I was, I go, get out of your car and fight me. <laughs> And he, he like, took off. Um, (laughs) And I was like, don't come back to this block. With, like, half a head of hair. So, (laughs) I was so angry. (laughs) Well, because nobody can tell you, like, why you have cancer. Like, you go to the doctor's office and you're like, but why? And they're like, we don't know. It just happens. And I was like, you mean to tell me that every October we're flooded with ribbons and nobody can tell me why, but all right. Um, You'll be glad you saved me. I'm a treat. Um, So the theme is like a last shot. And so I I just kind of consider that to be like my last shot. Like, I don't know why I got it, but I'm here. So, but I just, I kind of feel like I don't really have, I, I don't ever spend time with people I don't love because I don't have time to waste on anyone that I don't love, and neither do you. So that's my story. Thank you. (laughs) I'm just going to repeat part of that because I don't think you had enough time to absorb it and react properly. The part where she says... You can put this cap on your head and keep your head at negative 38, 38 degrees for eight hours, and then maybe not lose your hair. And then she did that. <laughs> Remember how much you bitched when it was cold all winter? <laughs> Thank you, Jessica. That was really great.
Catherine Morgan is next, and I'm I'm super excited to hear hers because it was like sort of gut-wrenching and spellbinding at the time and, and, and also charming and uh, just all of the things. Uh, so it might be totally boring now because she might have changed it a lot. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but it was great. So, Catherine Morgan. <laughs> Well, it was 77 degrees that day. Probably felt more like 75 degrees. It was gorgeous outside. I remember it really well because I was wearing this stunning green dress. You probably know the one I'm talking about. It's green sheath with this cute little white sweater. It was sleeveless, and I was kind of in that place in my life where I really didn't want to show shoulders. And I had these darling white kitten heels on. I mean, they were just perfect. And my hair, don't even get me started about my hair. My hair was just right. I mean, it flipped out. The color was fantastic. My part was perfection. It was a perfect day. It was September 13th, 2012. Maybe it was a perfect day because it was also the day after my birthday. And that's a pretty powerful day. I celebrated all month long. And I just love the energy and the magic But it was something about that day and the weather and living in the Northwest that I couldn't shake. As I said, it was perfect. I was working in a job I loved. I found myself going downtown, ready to have a meeting at Riverfront Park. So I parked across the river and found myself watching and gazing on somebody else enjoying this absolutely fantastic autumn day. He was a young dad with a son probably about a year maybe a year and a half, pretty cute. I mean, they were that cute father-son pair that you imagine going on a weekday to the park, enjoying the adventures that lie ahead. And I couldn't believe my eyes that it was only this couple of two wonderful people and myself that were out enjoying the incredible energy of this autumn day. Well, I parked my car and I watched them start making their way to the park. And the only way to do it was to cross the Washington Street Bridge. So off they went. I paid for my little parking ticket. I stuck it on the dash and I'll never forget. It was beautiful. It was exciting. I knew I was going to make this deal. I was ready to do it. I was confident. I was positive. And I had extra time. So I was going to stop and, as they say, smell the roses and I took in every moment. I walked up to the bridge, and I watched as this father-son pairing had their arms, they had their hands clenched, and they were swinging them back and forth. It was everything you'd imagine in a Hallmark movie. It was charming. It was delightful. It was inspiring. And I looked, and I thought about what the future holds for the two of them, what the future may hold for me someday. And I got to the start of the bridge, and I have to confess, I had my purse on my right-hand shoulder, and I looked over the edge. And there's something sparkly and, and mysterious about our beautiful Spokane River. It flows. It's magical. It cuts through the heart of our city. It is the strength. It is everything that binds us. And at that time of year, there's a little bit of a show It's a little shallow, and the water seems to trickle in the rocks that lay ahead. And I looked down and I thought, it's the one time of year you rocks get to show your strength in this storyline of the river of our region, isn't it? And they did. They were beautiful and a little overwhelming. When the water is that low, the bridge just seems that much higher. Well, I looked up ahead and I watched this father and son enjoying the moment halfway across the bridge. And before I took another step further, I thought about the reality that I had my work phone and my personal phone in my purse. 
And that purse was on the right-hand shoulder, leaning towards the bridge side. And if there's anything I didn't want to lose that day, it was my purse with my phones. That would be devastating. So I quickly made the decision, you're going to just swing your purse over to that left-hand shoulder, and you're going to make your way, and you're going to enjoy the moment. I'm watching ahead. It's father. It's son. It's my purse on my right-hand shoulder. I go to swing it across. I blink, and the kid is gone. And in that moment, I never would imagine what would happen next. If the dad doesn't jump, I have no choice. I have to jump into the water. I have to go after this kid. I have to do it. But I don't know how to swim. I blinked again, and no sooner has this scene unfold And this father takes off his baseball cap, drops the diaper bag, and yells, Oh my God! He doesn't even look. The man supermans off the bridge after his son. In that moment, I thought, You can't add to the chaos that is unfolding in front of you. Go down to the river. Go down there. Call 911. Do what you can from there. Let authorities know. They will handle the situation. They're the professionals. And I hear in the background, suicide, suicide. And I thought, oh my gosh, they don't know. There's a kid in the water. I'm on the phone. I rush down to the river bend. And I remember thinking in that moment, being very, very specific. It's the northwest corner of the bridge. That's where they're at, the northwest corner. I knew that confidently because that's where I was, but I didn't dare look. I didn't know what I was going to see. I wasn't sure I wanted to. I get to the river, and I look, and in that moment, I couldn't believe what I saw. But I saw this young dad with his son scooped up in his arms, with not a scratch on him, nothing but the smallest little bruise on his head, and they were okay. Emergency crews show up. They check everyone out. Everyone's fine. They take a statement. And I realize at this point, I'm much too late for my meeting, but maybe I can go because remember, I'm going to close that deal. This is going to be great. I can just get my mojo back. I am fine. This had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with me at all. I went to the bridge. I stood at the bridge and I stopped. I couldn't cross. I called, gave my apologies, and they made the comment, wait, were you the girl on the bridge? the one who called it in. They said, don't worry, you can come back. Take care. Talk soon. I went back to the office, didn't really say anything, and a teammate saw me. And she made the comment, are you all right? And I, and I just sort of in passing just shared what had happened. And I said, I, I have to ask, will you teach me how to swim? And there it was. That afternoon, I signed up for two things, the Valley Girl Triathlon to give myself a goal and the local gym. And the next morning, there I was, swim cap, earplugs, goggles in the pool, and my friend telling me, okay, ready? Put your head in the water. Whoa, I'm sorry. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can't I swim without putting my head in the water? I mean, isn't that doggy paddling? I thought I saw it in a movie. And she said, you're, you're going to have to put your head in the water. Well... As you can imagine, I'm not someone that's not going to follow through on commitments. And there I was. I completed Valley Girl Sprint Triathlon, and I did it all without my head in the water. I mean, I wore the swim cap. I had the goggles. I had the earplugs in. But let's be honest. It was for just in case I went in. 
so the years went on, and then something exciting came to town. It's a small thing, an inaugural one. It was an Iron Man 70.3 in Coeur d'Alene, something, something that made it sound a little bit less intimidating than a full Iron Man. And it occurred to me in the chapter of my life that I was in, with a lot of celebrations and successes and momentum, there were also challenges. And I saw this as an opportunity to overcome the fear that somehow I skirted my way through without ever putting my head in the water. So 10 weeks before a 70.3 Ironman, I decided to sign up and bought a bike and didn't know that when they said it was a 1.2 mile swim, a 56 mile bike, and a 13.1 mile run, did not realize or understand when they said 56 mile bike, that that would be on hills. But it didn't really matter because the whole purpose of actually signing up for this thing was to overcome the fear. And that was the goal and the purpose. I trained and I trained a lot. And I'll never ever forget the morning of my very first Ironman 70.3 in Coeur d'Alene. I was in the wetsuit. I had, what did I have? I had swim cap, goggles, earplugs. I was ready. I knew how to do this. But the fascinating thing is when you're doing this, you're doing it in an open lake. And there's no room for, quote, cheating. The only way to complete it in the allocated time they give you is to stick your head in the water. The cannon, yes, the cannon. The cannon goes off. The enthusiasm, the energy, I'll never forget what it felt like. I felt like a seal in my wetsuit. I felt super strong, super light. I could do this, and I get in the water, and I start making it one stroke at a time, one buoy at a time, and I'm looking around. I felt like I was at a pool party, and I wanted to yell, I'm doing it! My head's in the water! Can you believe it? And I thought, don't lose momentum. you got to get out in time. Hurry, hurry, you only have 70 minutes. One buoy at a time, one stroke at a time. I round the final corner. I get onto the beach, and I got out with minutes to spare. I was so excited, I couldn't even handle it. I looked around like I had just won the Olympics. I wanted to tell everyone. I put my head in the water. Did you see? Did you see? And I'm alive to tell it. And they're saying, hurry, if you don't get on your bike, you're going to be cut out of Iron Man. Oh, you mean I'm still in this? So there I went. I hop on the bike four hours and 30 minutes to finish 56 miles. Well, I never really trained for that part fully because I never thought I'd actually get out of the water, but there I was, and I knew my pace, and mathematically it was impossible for me to finish 56 miles with the hill climbs that it included in that time frame. Meanwhile, four hours, 27 minutes, not a single break, and I got off the bike in time, and I couldn't believe it. I'm yelling, did you see I got out of the water alive? And they're like, you got off the bike and you have two minutes to get on the marathon course. I said, you know what I didn't train for? <laughs> and there I was on the marathon course. And, and I was on the marathon course. I was one of the last two or three on the inaugural 70.3 Ironman marathon course. Do you know what that looks like? It looks like the people who set up the cones, removing the cones by the time you get there. And I just couldn't imagine. I just kept, I, I found myself saying, excuse me, is this the direction? Are you, are you doing this? Yes, yes, this is what the bib means. I am a participant. And I made my way and I was rounding the corner. And at this point I looked at my time and I thought, 
oh my gosh, you're going to be an Iron Man. And I was making my way, the energy, the momentum. I looked at the volunteers. I said, when is that cutoff time? The half point cutoff time. I have two loops to make. It is a 13.1 mile run I need to accomplish. Can I do it? And they're yelling, yes, two o'clock, just get to the park. And I find my way rounding the corner and I'm pushing myself and I'm pushing myself. And I look at my watch. I see the timing mat. I make the leap. 159.38. I couldn't believe it. I was excited. I was thrilled. I see my mom. She's jumping and cheering and I'm holding back every emotion because I remember what that chapter of my life felt like. It was everything. It was joys. It was sorrows. It was the successes of going out and doing a swim that day. And it was the sorrows of the struggles of life and work and all of it put together. I'd come to realize that this journey of triathlons and swimming meant so much. I would celebrate it with my joys. And I'd use it as an outlet for my sorrows. See, it was a powerful thing, this training and this journey. No one sees you cry in the water. I made the corner. I had tears in my eyes with pride. And I thought to myself, you can push it. You can do the next seven miles, no problem. But there was a man waving his arms, and he yelled, the cutoff time was 1.55. We're so sorry. Your race is over. And around me, those that had worked so hard and trained for months and years, tears, raw emotion everywhere, And I had never been so proud in my entire life. It was one of the greatest moments. Fast forward to the next year, vindication. I had it. Redemption. I was going to get it done. And of course, I did. Eight hours, 17 minutes, and eight seconds with less than 13 minutes to spare. I became an Ironman 70.3 finisher, and it was one of the most exciting moments to be sure. However, however, if I look back in my triathlon career as it has so become, my favorite has always been that first Ironman, that 70.3 and the inaugural event in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. You see, it was never about the medal that day as you have come to find. It was about the little boy. It's 2019 now, and he's probably eight years old. And I often wonder, has he walked across the Washington Street Bridge ever since that day? I know I haven't. Jim McPherson is a retired communications study professor, and uh, I think you're going to love this uh, story. But also, uh, I I learned in his bio here uh, that he and his wife are going to explore the rest of the West in a travel trailer over the next year. So I'm betting that uh, we might get to hear some more stories, Jim. So we'll start with this one. Jim McPherson. When my father was a kid, his dad taught him to play cribbage. My granddad, whom I never met because alcohol killed him before I was born, my granddad was a logger. And he'd wake up my dad early in the morning 
so that dad could play cribbage with him while dad had his breakfast, and then dad would go back to bed. Now, I never met my granddad, but my dad taught me to play cribbage when I was growing up in a small Idaho logging town, too. And some of my fondest memories with my father involve that game. Especially when I was in college, it seems like it was especially noteworthy because I would come home from college and Dad and I would sit up late. We'd drink Olympia beer, we'd listen to Willie Nelson, we'd talk about almost anything. Because if guys can be looking at cards instead of each other, you can have a lot more meaningful conversations. <laughs> so we, w we played hundreds, maybe thousands of games of cribbage. 15-2, 15-4, eights a dozen. If you play cribbage, that will make sense to you. If, it, if you don't, that's okay. But they were great memories. And then, of course, I graduated from college, and I moved a thousand miles away. And we didn't get together so much anymore. But I had a good job, and life was good for a while. And then it wasn't so good. And then a few years after I found, a few years after my high school graduating class voted me most likely to succeed, I found myself living in a 1966 GMC school bus working as a migrant worker on an Easter lily farm for minimum wage. But I did make it home that summer for my sister's wedding. Not surprisingly, my dad and I drank more than anybody else at the rehearsal dinner. And the next morning, the two of us were dispatched to pick up the wedding cake, perhaps to keep us out of trouble. But regardless, while we were on the way back with the cake, my dad said to me, you know, son, you and I are both alcoholics. And I'm too old to do anything about it. But you're young enough, you probably still could. Now, I was a little surprised, I have to admit, by my dad's words. And, and I'll also admit that they did not keep me from making a total ass of myself at the reception that night. One family member at every Idaho wedding has to do that, and I was the designee that particular <laughs> wedding. But my actions that night and the words he had offered gave me something to think about over the course of the next few months, and I eventually found myself at a few Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And I didn't drink for a while, until one day I decided that this was the day I had to go to town and get something to drink. So about a week before that, unbeknownst to me, my father had been traveling with a recovering alcoholic. Somebody I'd never met. Somebody I never knew. And why this came up, I don't know. Maybe it was just a male bonding thing. Maybe my father was just trying to make contact with a guy. But he said, you know, my son is doing the same thing you're doing. 
This guy went home, and he found my address, and he wrote me a letter. And on the very day that I had decided I was going to go to town and get something to drink, before my ride arrived, that letter arrived. And I honestly don't remember a lot of what was in the letter, but I do remember these words. If you work the program and you trust in God, you'll be fine. Well, trusting in God wasn't really my thing, um, but I just started to bawl. And I literally got down on my knees on the floor of a 1966 GMC school bus that when I bought it had the words Faith Bible Church <laughs> painted on the side. And I offered a prayer that went something like this. God, I don't know what the F I'm doing, but if you don't help me, I'm going to die. And I've never had a drink since. And I've never had a desire to have a drink since. And I honestly can't remember if I've ever told my father how he and his friend played into that. I know that my father was proud of me when I went back to school and got a master's degree like he had. I know he was proud when I went into education as he had and proud when I got a PhD and then I became a teacher as he had. Neither of us would have believed that so much of my academic career would have been spent teaching at a Christian university but nonetheless there it was. A few years later, my dad quit drinking too. And now when we get together, we don't drink beer anymore. We mostly drink water. And we don't play cribbage anymore because my dad has dementia. And the words 15-2, 15-4, and eight's a dozen probably wouldn't mean much to him either. Now I play cribbage with my sister, and I stay up late at night and talk to my mom. And we talk about my dad. And dad, I realized his dementia is a terribly sad thing, but he, out, he has lived a really good life, and he's helped a lot of people. And... I also realized that having drank to the point of passing out many times in my young life before my brain was fully formed and having suffered multiple concussions from a combination of uh, football and stupidity, chances are very good that I will have dementia too. And I'm not sure how to feel about that, frankly, because I've already lived longer than I had a right to. Right, Dad? I mean, Dad, if you happen to hear this somehow, it really is me, your eldest son. The one who has the same name you do. And if you're confused about what day this is, well, just think of it as Father's Day, huh? I know I've talked for too long, but I wanted to say, Happy Father's Day. Thank you for everything. And I love you, Dad.
Thank you, Jim. Our next storyteller is Vic Gumbier, who is a professor at Gonzaga, and I don't know Vic at all, but I love him because I love people that are excited about anything. I don't care. I mean, I care a little bit about what it is, but really not very much. Like, just, if you... You're pumped about something. I love that. And Vic's story uh, will show you how much like love and enthusiasm he has for for this one evening in his life, food, which I also have a lot of enthusiasm for. So my new best friend, Vic. So as it turns out, today is somewhat of an anniversary. Uh, quite to my surprise, this morning I woke up to Facebook, and its infinite algorithmic knowledge or wisdom reminded me that eight years ago today, I received notification from Gonzaga University that I had been granted tenure. Okay, all right. No, 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 no. Okay, so it's going to sound egotistical, but this was expected. It was a relief, but it was, ex it was expected. I had done what had been asked of me. I had letters from faculty peers and students attesting to the fact that I was, at the very least, a competent teacher. My advisees were graduating. I had several committee assignments in which I had not made any mortal enemies. The same cannot be said of the last five years. I had turned my dissertation research into a book, and I had started an undergraduate research program in my department. Now, even knowing that I had done what was expected of me, there was still this creeping fear that, despite following that recipe to a T, something was going to go wrong. Something would come out of nowhere, an academic sucker punch would catch me off guard. A villain would emerge from the shadows and submarine my attempt to get tenure. It didn't happen. On that day, eight years ago, I received tenure. And it was a cause to celebrate, right? Oh, just didn't quite have it in me. Because a year earlier, my lovely partner and I had bought a house. And a house is a very tricky creature. <laughs> At some level, we were busy trying to turn that house into a home, which is a much more expensive proposition than anyone ever tells you. And we were also finding out there were so many little pieces to home ownership that caught us by surprise. We just didn't have the funds to do it right. So we had a nice dinner, we sat down, and we started saving up. And about a year later, November 2012, that's when we would make it right. Because in November 2012, the American Society of Criminology meetings would be in one of our favorite cities in the country, Chicago, Illinois, my sister's hometown, and a place where dining can be a proper indulgence. I submitted a paper. It was accepted. I would give my presentation on Thursday for I don't even remember when I gave my presentation because that was just the official reason for the trip. We were really going to celebrate, and to celebrate was to eat, and we had it planned out. Or, I think it's not fair to say that we had it planned out. She had it planned out. 
she did the work, and it was amazing work. On Wednesday, we would dine at Topolabampo, Rick Bayless's, uh, high, uh, Rick Bayless's fine dining Mexican restaurant. It would be the anthropology of Mexico laid out on plates before you. On Thursday, we and some friends would go to Paul Cahan's Blackbird. It was Midwestern ingredients, Midwestern themes mixed with French technique. And it was beautiful. On Friday, my sister would take us on a tour of her favorite local haunt. She wouldn't let it go where we were going. But I knew it was going to be great. But Saturday night was a bit of a conflict. You see, it was our last night in town. And we were at an impasse as to where to go. My partner wanted to go to Grant Ackett's flagship restaurant, Alinea. Oh, I, I wanted to go. I was just terrified of the price. You see, all of these meals were going to be <laughs> expensive. And while I had just received tenure and gotten a promotion and a, a nice little raise, that house was still eating money as fast as we could put it in. And I was scared. So I put my foot down and I said, we are not doing Alinea. And I was overruled. <laughs> she went ahead, made the reservations, paid for dinner. But I won one very important part of that battle. We would go to dinner using public transportation. <laughs> there is no doubt in my mind that she was the most beautiful woman to, to grace the L in years, in one of the most... It, it, it defies words, the dress, and me there in her favorite suit and her favorite tie. We arrive, walk up from the train station, and walk half a block to where the restaurant is, in theory, supposed to be, but we can't see it. There's no sign. There's no thing that tells us this is, that this row house is this world-famous restaurant, except for a man standing in front of the door. Surely he has seen the confusion on our faces numerous times before because he just looks at us and kind of goes, and he opens the door. And we step from a dark, cold street in Chicago into the sunset of a suburban Chicagoland backyard. On the ground are leaves, red, orange, yellow. The light just peeks out over these curtains that have been laced across the wall. Beside us are glasses, stemless wine glasses filled with cider. The perfect distillation of early autumn. I take a drink. And at that moment in time, I made a decision. I decided to surrender. I said, yes. And we walk down the hall, and the mater d' pops out from one side and greets us by name and even pronounces my last name correctly, which I thought was really impressive. He ushers us to our table. We sit down. We are presented with the first little course. Yes. A waiter comes up to the table. May I tell you, did you want wine with this evening? Yes. Would you like the reserve wine pairings? Yes. 
We have a supplement. Yes. Don't you want to know what it is? Yes, but it's not going to change my answer. And then the food starts to arrive. Now, I could detail almost every dish that came to the table that night, but I'm not going to do that for you tonight. I'm only going to highlight a few. One of the first dishes (laughs) was a sea urchin shell, and in it was this moose. That moose was sea urchin and white chocolate. I know, I know. It doesn't make any sense. And when I saw it and I looked at the menu and the white chocolate, I didn't understand. But the look on the waiter's face was like, nobody understands. That's why, you're, that's why you put it in your mouth. <laughs> and I did. It didn't taste like sea urchin. It didn't taste like white chocolate. It didn't taste like anything I'd ever had before. It was fatty. It was luscious. It was salty. And like a little wave whipping against the beach... It smacked me with the saltiness, and then it promptly retreated. I swallowed, and it was gone. I swear, if I hadn't been on my best behavior, I would have licked the inside of that sea urchin shell. I almost regret that I didn't. One of the next dishes arrived in a very theatrical presentation. It was a bourbon barrel stave, full size of the barrel. It had been placed in an oven and heated until it was smoking. It sits down in front of you, and the, just the aroma of Kentucky fills your, fills your lungs. It filled my nose. And on it are these three little, little, little um, fillets of Arctic char. Get it? Char? Bourbon barrel? Char? I, I, I kind of dismissed the cleverness, and then I tried it. And I wish I could provide some good adjectives to tell you what those bites of fish tasted like. All I remember is that those bites of fish are the best bites of fish I have ever eaten in my entire life. And in a moment, it was gone. After that, uh, let's jump ahead to the supplement for the evening, which is white truffle risotto. Now, a man walks up, we, we, we finished whatever course it was, and a man walks up to our table. We are in conversation because this meal compels us to be together in ways that only great food can do. But a man walks up to the table, he's in a brown chef's coat, and he stands there at perfect attention. In his hands is a mahogany cigar humidor. He doesn't talk to us. He just looks at us in the eye until we look up at him and he has our attention. And while looking at both of us, he directs our attention down to the humidor. He takes it in his hands, he pops it open. And inside is a white truffle that I tell you is just slightly smaller than the size of my fist. As we stare at it, as Vincent Vega stared into the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. (laughs) He snaps it shut. I'll be right back. He sweeps away and two other other servers sweep in and they deposit in front of us these two white plates with stainless steel cloches. The cloches come off and the risotto is the same color as the white plate. 
it are the, they're these little shiny pearls of rice staring up at us. Another server descends with, a, with, with one of those really, really cute saucepans filled with brown butter. And in swooshes, he puts the brown butter on the risotto. And the man with the humidor returns. And he begins just shaving truffle over the risotto. And he doesn't stop until every little pearl of rice disappears. The man with the brown butter returns, puts more on, and even more truffle until maybe a little nub of that truffle is done. It was not risotto with truffles. It was truffles with risotto. To this very day, my partner will tell you it is the best bite of food she has ever had. I disagree on technical terms, but I can say this. It is easily the most indulgent experience I have ever had in my life. After that, there's several other dishes, and then dessert begins. Uh, And the dish from dessert that always stands out to me was this carrot sorbet. I mean, it's a carrot. Carrots are humble. They're a utilitarian route when you get right down to it, a vehicle for other flavors. We don't do the carrot justice in our cuisine in America. It's an afterthought. This little canal of carrot sorbet was everything a carrot could ever aspire to be. (laughs) If carrots tasted like that all the time, we would eat nothing but carrots. (laughs) And then there was the grand finale, which is as much theater as it is treat. The waitstaff came out and removed all items from our table and replaced our, and covered our table with this strangely textured tablecloth. A server came out and in his hands was about the size of a softball, maybe a little bit more, a dark chocolate egg. He placed it in the center of the table, removed the top, and another server came by with a carafe of liquid nitrogen and poured it in. They replaced the top, and the liquid nitrogen started dancing over the sides of the chocolate egg. And then two more servers arrived at the table, and they started putting sauces and treats directly on the tablecloth. Swooshes of chocolate, of mango, of stone fruit, little pieces of honeycomb littered all around, and then Almost as if called by voices, they retreated. And another chef arrived at the table with a spoon, looked at us in the eye again, tapped the egg, and it exploded all over the table. But it was so precise that none of it got on any of us. And there we are left with the final task of the evening, which is to clean the table. I only wish that cleaning the table in my regular life could be as delicious as this. So I hope it goes without saying that this is, without a doubt, the best meal I have ever enjoyed in my life. But it is so much more than that. This meal transformed the way I understand the world. It changed the way I looked at the potential of things. It changed the way that I imagine the possibilities of what is around me. It changed the way I approached my work. 
I want to teach. I want to think of my teaching. I want to approach my teaching in the way that truly imaginative chefs approach their ingredients, approach their food, approach their menus. It taught me the value of surrender, of just saying yes, and that control doesn't really always matter that much. It taught me what it meant to truly be with another human being. I have never been so naked as I was that night with my partner. And it was food that brought us together. There's an honesty when you share something that changes your life like that. Um, The one thing the meal didn't give me was a proper ending to this story. And when we rehearsed, when we rehearsed, I I expressed that. I go, I don't know how to end this. I, I don't know where to stop telling the story. And Eric gave me a gift that night. He said, he said something along the lines of, well, you, you, can't, you don't know how to end the story because you don't want it to end. <laughs> he couldn't be more right. So I'd really like to tell you about this meal I had at Italia Trattoria. <laughs> but we'll save that for another night. <laughs> Thank you. storyteller is going to um, talk about um, an adventure that she had uh, in a place that has always captured my imagination, uh, where I would also like to talk for quite a long time about the food, uh, but she's got another, another focus for us. Um, Elizabeth Slimkowski? Where you at, girl? Through the door into the dimly lit room, I immediately became hyper aware of my surroundings as any woman does when she realizes she's in a room full of unfamiliar men. These unfamiliar men stared daggers at me. Oh, wait a second. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'll start over. Through the door into the dimly lit room, I immediately became hyper aware of my surroundings, as any woman does when she walks into a room of unfamiliar men. These unfamiliar men stared daggers at me as though I was breaking up the party. And maybe I was breaking up the party. It didn't feel like I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I knew I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Despite my hesitation and the the suspicious looks coming my way, manners mattered. So per the Chilean custom, I greeted each man individually. The the expectation for females is to touch right cheeks while kissing the air with each person in the room. So I did. Our cheeks touched, but just long enough not to be rude, almost like my cheek was infected with something they didn't want to catch. The air was kissed, but with a coldness and a hesitation that was peculiar to me in a country full of people that explain themselves as being de piel, or loving skin and physical contact. As I nervously sat down, I soaked in my surroundings. Earlier that day, through the door of the Red Jeep Wrangler, I cherished the warmth of the sunlight and took in the rocky and expansive Chilean coastline. Replacing the smoggy city of Santiago with the Chilean coast was exactly what we needed. Matias and I decided that morning that we had to escape the depressing cloud of smog that had engulfed our city. We had his car, a tent, 
closed for two days, and no plan. Matias, my Chilean pololo, our boyfriend, and I, shared an obsession with the outdoors, movement, and adventure. He was eight years older than me, had shaggy curly hair, and was an ultramarathon runner. He had a smile that didn't come out very often, but when it did, it was somewhat charming. We spent the day running along the beach, exploring each little beach town, and eating empanadas, just soaking in the sun, fresh air, and the delicious food. As the sun set, the warmth quickly went with it, and Matias told me he'd like to visit a friend. His name was Michel before we went back to Santiago. I had never heard of this friend of Matias's. Together, they had coached some of Chile's elite track and field athletes, and they hadn't seen each other in a while. I didn't really feel like socializing with someone new, but Matias promised we wouldn't be there for long. Pulling onto Michel's street gave me the creeps. It was dark, cold, and very uninviting. There were hardly any lights on in any of the apartment buildings or houses that surrounded us. If any of you have been to South America, you know you can't just go up right to the front door, so you have to get buzzed in at the gate. We got buzzed in at the gate and walked to the front door. Michel opened the door. He wasn't what I was expecting at all. He was in his late 50s, bald, with a long salt and pepper beard and kind eyes. He sported a bright yellow Rio de Janeiro 2016 Olympics polo. He, cheated, he greeted us cheerfully, and while still in the dark entryway, offered us beers. I accepted. Beer in hand, I followed Michel through the door into the dimly lit room, where I immediately became hyper aware of my surroundings, as any woman does when she realizes she's in a room of unfamiliar men. There's an awareness that most, if not every woman, constantly lives with. Where am I? Am I safe? Am I in a potentially harmful situation? And there was a whole other level of awareness that I felt living for so many years out of the culture that I grew up in. I couldn't not stand out, and my accent was the biggest indicator. I cautiously greeted each of the men, attempting my best Chilean accent, all the while knowing something wasn't right. As I sat down, I noticed a few things. There were four other men in the room besides Matias and Michel. The first thing I noticed was I was in a room with six hombres. Two were about Michel's age, mid to late 50s, and the two that were the most unhappy that I was there were around my age, mid 20s. The second thing I realized was that it looked like it wasn't a typical boys' night. It looked like they were meeting with a purpose, which was odd considering the fact that it was a Saturday night. And the third thing I realized was that I was more unwelcome than Matias, and I couldn't figure out why. I took a nervous sip of my beer. Something about having a beer in my hand made my Spanish much more fluent. <laughs> After a longer than culturally acceptable silence, Michel reintroduced me to the group, reminding them that my name was Lise, that I was living in Santiago, but from the United States of America. The very mention of my home country let me see that my womanness wasn't the issue. My foreignness was. Almost to cover up the negative reaction, Michel went on to say, we're so happy that you're here, Liz. We were just having a reunion del partido. Translated meaning, a meeting of the party. Que bueno, how great, I said. What party is that? He responded, El Partido Comunista de Chile. I had found myself in a Chilean Communist Party meeting. I nervously smiled. My eyes got very wide. I was fascinated, and I also felt extremely uncomfortable. 
Before I go on with what transpired in the dimly lit room, after I reached my aha moment of why I shouldn't have been there, I want to give you a little historical context. In 1970, the Chilean people democratically elected a socialist president by the name of Salvador Allende. Allende's election terrified the United States, and the CIA did whatever it could to undermine his policies and his presidency. In 1973, there was a United States-backed coup that violently overthrew Allende's government, killed him in the process, and established a capitalist military government. That capitalist military government suspended all political activity in Chile and brutally repressed left-wing movements, especially the communists and socialist parties. Augusto Pinochet, the dictator from the early 1970s to the early 1990s, supported the internment, torture, and executions of tens of thousands of Chileans. So there I was, a young American girl in a room full of Chilean communists. I so hoped that I wouldn't be blamed for my government's past mistakes, which had happened to me before. Sometimes our first shots are our last shots, and perhaps this would be my only shot. So I smiled nervously and thought to myself, oh my gosh, this is probably going to be such an amazing story one day. I really hope it ends well. I took a deep breath and let my curiosity get the best of me. My curiosity disarmed and practically paralyzed the men in the room. They didn't know what to do. I asked my first question and they answered skeptically. But then I asked another one and another one and another one and they gradually loosened up as time went on. They told me about how much they pay and dues to the party, explained to me how many seats they had in Congress, showed me their mini red identification holders, even tried to get me one, and explained to me how the party had recovered after such painful years under the dictatorship. They told me about the the loss of loved ones, of friends, family members, and significant others. Some of these loved ones they spent one day together, dined with, or saw, and the next day they disappeared and never came back. And they've still never come back. To, To this day, they're still officially missing. As I listened, I looked around the room and noticed there was a a small, stuffed Karl Marx doll, a green hat, a military green hat with a red star in the middle, and other communist paraphernalia all over the place. I marveled at what an amazing opportunity this was for me, and I slyly internally smiled at how my very wonderful but very conservative parents would hate the situation I was in. I quickly snapped back to attention as questions started coming my way. They asked me all about this strange, this strange country, the United States of America, basically the enemy of the Communist Party. Asked me about our strange customs and traditions. Asked, asked me why we were so obsessed with capitalism and what exactly that was doing for us, or rather why we would allow such big corporations to run our country. They asked and I answered. I asked and they answered. And all the while, we loosened up and laughed a lot. I asked them why anybody would choose to pay a portion of their salary to a political party. And being a teacher, that's that's, um, just a very real um, issue for me. Um, And they knowingly smiled and patiently responded. What they had, the salary that they earned, should be for all. 
They asked me about malls in the United States, to which I said, boys, 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 please, malls? They're practically obsolete. Haven't you heard of Amazon? They hadn't. It's, it's a website where you can buy practically anything you could ever want and get it delivered right to your door. It's consumerism at its finest. They put their shaking heads in their palms in disbelief. Matthias hadn't said a single thing all night until he piped in and said, Liz, it's late. We have to go. I was crushed. He, took, he brought me back to reality after a total high of companionship, laughter, and learning. I quickly stopped by the bathroom before we headed out. As I opened the door to the bathroom, Michel was standing there, waiting for me, right there. He had a big grin on his face, and he, in his hands, he held the military green hat with the red star in the middle. He outstretched his hands and showed me, and told me, this is from the, people's, the Chinese People's Liberation Army. I want you to have it so you can always remember this night that we've shared together. And if you're ever back in Viña del Mar in the future, you're always welcome at our party meetings. I, que emoción. I was touched. We mutually went in for a giant bear hug as we despedied or said goodbye to each other. One by one, Michelle's friends and my newfound comrades said goodbye to me. This time, though, our cheeks touched and the air was kissed, but with a, more t- with a tight squeeze that signified a, more cl- a closer relationship, or buena onda, good vibes between two people. Before I walked out the door, they insisted that we take a picture together. And even though I felt like we had all bonded, there was one of the younger men that refused to be in a picture with me. But that's okay, you can't win them all. So to this day, I have a picture of Michel, three of his friends and my newfound comrades, smiling from ear to ear with all of the communist paraphernalia we could hold. And I even got to hold, I even got the privilege of holding the Karl Marx doll. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Our next storyteller, you've probably heard of, she's like a pretty big deal. And you might know Molly Allen from um, her radio show or um, any of the other, like, great, she's a nonprofit. She supports a lot of really great things in town. But um, she is an amazing creative powerhouse and a playwright. And there's lots of opportunities to see her doing some other creative things, which I think is a really impressive body of work that she has. Uh, And tonight we get to hear her as a storyteller. So I welcome Molly Allen. Um, I have been called impetuous, and uh, mostly by my mom. And at first, when she said I was impetuous, I said, oh my God, thank you. And then I looked it up. And it's to act or do without care or thought. And then I said, that, uh uh-uh, no, I I don't like that. And then, but to be fair, I've had about 20 jobs, three marriages, and I own an RV. So possibly she was on to something with this impetuous comment. That's sort of been a theme through my life. But I think in this story that my impetuous nature may have helped me and helped someone else. About 17 years ago, I came to the realization that I wasn't going to be able to have a baby. Now, my heartbreak and disappointment quickly turned into problem solving. I decided that... We, my second husband, Brian, and I, and I'm not going to name all the husbands. You don't have to keep track. It's a lot. But my second husband, Brian, and I decided we were going to adopt a baby. 
So we did all of the paperwork, we did our home study, we got all of our cash together, and we we submitted our application. We were waiting for a baby. Well, somehow, somewhere in the process, it occurred to us that there were like 30 other couples who were just as deserving, probably more capable of raising a baby, and it seemed frustrating. Well, my friend Mary had suggested the idea of an older adoption, and I had never really thought of that. Well, being impetuous, I immediately tore up all the other pace, you know, uh, the paperwork, and I started in on, now we're going to adopt an older child. This is what we're going to do. So I'm scouring the internet. I'm on Northwest Adoption Exchange. I'm on Wednesday's Child, and I'm going to find a child for us. This is what we're doing. Well, we got invited to a thing called Kids Fest in Tacoma. And this, I'm not going to compare it to, like, an animal shelter situation, because I, I'm not. I mean, but it is, kind of, because... <laughs> It's, and, and there's a new movie called Instant Family that's out, and they show this, and it's, it's exactly what happens. So we go to Tacoma for the day, and you, you go to this carnival setting, and they're going to have foster kids who are legally free from age 2 to about 17. And you're going to play carnival games and do things. And they have a brochure, and it lists their shortcomings and their difficulties. I mean, it really does. That's what you're seeing. And they even warn you, don't, the cute ones can have terrible problems, so don't be fooled by the cute ones. I mean, they're doing all these warnings. So we get there, and they said, here's the thing. Don't spend too much time with one particular child because they might get their hopes up. And you don't want to do that. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to meet a four-year-old girl. She's going to be perfect. She lost her family in a terrible accident, but nothing else bad has happened to her. I'm going to raise her. She might be the first female president of the United States. And for sure, they're going to make a movie of the week about my life. Because that's how good of a parent I'm going to be to this really good little four-year-old girl. That's not what happened. We get to Kids Fest, and I'm looking around for this perfect four-year-old girl that in my head I pictured I was going to raise, and it was going to be so easy. It was going to be so simple. Well, this little boy popped up next to us with dark hair and dark eyes, and he was small, but he was nine. He was nine and a half. And he said, hey, want to do spin art with me? And we said, yeah. Yeah. We'll do spin art. Sure, let's do spin art. So we did spin art with him. We spent the whole day with him. We weren't supposed to do that because it was getting his hopes up, but we did. We left. We got on the plane, came back home. This was October of 2003. Well, around Thanksgiving, we got a call. We had been matched with a little boy based on our parenting experience, which was zero, and his lack of special needs. They thought we'd be a good match, and they said, do you remember meeting a little boy named Jake? And we said, that's the spin art kid. But he's like nine and a half. He's not a four-year-old perfect little girl. He's nine and a half. Do you want to meet him and spend some time with him? We said, okay, let's do it. So we flew over to Bremerton, got him from his foster family, and we took him out. And he showed us his very favorite Chinese restaurant. He knew the whole way around. He's nine and a half. He knew his way around Bremerton. We were about four blocks away from his house, and he puts his arms around the headrest, and he said, Mom, Dad, you don't mind if I call you that, do you? I said, no, that's not terrifying. You should call us that, for sure. You should start now. Let's do that. We're both just staring ahead, driving, thinking, oh, my God, what are we doing? So we visited him. He visited us. They wanted us to do this a bunch of times. We said, look, we're we're all in. Send him here. We want to adopt him. We want to take him in. So it was a Friday. I had to work during the day. Brian flew over and got him. He brought him. 
he dropped him off with me and he promptly went to work. He worked at the Met at the time and there was a play opening that night. And typically I was at every single opening of every play that ever happened because that's what we did. All of a sudden I was home alone with an almost 10 year old (laughs) and my friends were all out partying. And we had to go to the store. And he proceeded to ask me for every single thing in the store. And not in a nice way. And can I get this? Can I get this? Can I get this? Can I get this? And I could feel the tears welling up and the panic setting in. And my friends called me at intermission and said, how's it going? I said, what did I do? Why did I do this? He wants everything in the store. How do you tell people they don't get off stuff? He's going to hate me. I'm over. They calmed me down. We got through that night. We got through the month. We got through six months. We legally adopted him six months later, which was fantastic. I have a billion stories about how um, all the parenting mistakes that I made. Of course, we all have those. But when he came to live with us, we had asked him, how do you want your room decorated? And he said, I want a jungle theme. So us being the perfect overachieving parents, we we hired like an artist to draw on his walls. We had it all painted. We had, you know, trees, everything set up. Well, he got there and promptly put a 50-cent poster on the wall and blasted 50 cent. He was a 10-year-old boy. Where was the four-year-old girl? I don't know. I took him to Little League practice. The first day the coach said, so uh, does your son play baseball? I said, I don't know, Jake, do you play baseball? He said, no. And I said, no, he doesn't. (laughs) He looked at me like I was the worst parent in the world. But there, he was 10. There was so much I did not know about this boy. So cut to years later, he has all grown up. It's fitting that we're here tonight because he is actually, he works in construction and he was part of the crew that redid this actual building, which is kind of cool. He's 25 now. He works construction. He's given me three beautiful grandchildren who I adore. And because of him, I started a foundation called Safety Net and we help the kids who age out of foster care systems. So in this case, I believe that it was good that I was a bit impetuous because if I had had any more time to give any more thought to what I was about to jump into, I probably wouldn't have done it. And that would have been a shame because he wouldn't have had a forever family, I wouldn't have my grandchildren, and we wouldn't have safety net here in Spokane. And this night is about last shots. And I think he woke up the morning of that kid's fest and in his mind, this was his last shot at a forever family. He was almost 10 and the odds were against him. And he took the shot, and he charmed us, and he won. Thank you, Molly. Thank you, storytellers. Let's uh, give it up for all of them tonight.